You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. I'm James Hitchcock, professor of history at St. Louis University, and we're moving on with our account of the Second Vatican Council. This is the fifth in the series of six lectures. In the previous lectures, we talked about the background of the Council, and we also talked about the major areas of Catholic life that the Council dealt with and what it had to say on those subjects. Today, I want to talk primarily about the aftermath of the Council, if you want to call it the application of the Council in the Church and in the world. The Council formally ended in December of 1965. It was actually, in a way, one of the shorter Councils in history. The Council of Trent had gone on, on and off for 18 years. Now the First Vatican Council looked very short on paper, 1870-71. But as a matter of fact, technically, it had never been suspended. It had never been ended because the Italian troops marched on Rome while the council was in session, and the council had to break up. And it's a very small point, but technically an interesting one, that when the Second Vatican Council met, they officially ended the First Vatican Council, which officially had still been going on. But the Second Vatican Council acted with great dispatch in dealing with a significant number of issues in a period of a little over two years. There was also a remarkable degree of unanimity among the Council Fathers that every single one of the schema, as they're called, or decrees, was passed by an overwhelming majority with only a rather small minority, tiny minority in most cases, voting against it. And one may ascribe varying explanations to this, but I think what it does do is to reinforce the point which I believe John Twenty-Third had in mind at the beginning, and that is the faith of the church is settled. The faith of the church is not in dispute. We are not in an era of doctrinal quarrel, and consequently it is not in many ways controversial to state Catholic doctrine. Now, there were, as we've seen, controversial areas, such as ecumenism, such as the question of religious liberty. We'll come back to those again. But on the whole, there was overwhelming agreement. I think also we should not underestimate the degree to which the Council itself was a kind of learning experience for most of the bishops who participated. I mentioned this earlier in connection with the American hierarchy, some of whom acknowledged that when they went to Rome, they had only the vaguest notion of what this was all about, had only the vaguest notion about some of these doctrinal issues that were going to be discussed, tended on the whole to take the good old pragmatic American attitude, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Why are we wondering and fiddling around about the nature of the church when the church seems to be doing very well? Certainly it is in our country. But many of these same American bishops then described how they sat at the council and heard speeches 
And it was a revelation to them. They began to see dimensions of the church which they had not seen before. They had begun to appreciate things in a way they had not appreciated them before. Most American bishops were themselves rather pragmatic men. It's often been said that the chief qualification for being a bishop in those days was to be a good administrator. A bishop had to be a fundraiser, a builder, time of rapid expansion in the church. He had to be a hard-headed businessman. Very few bishops could be called theologians or intellectuals. It might be different in some other parts of the world. So for a lot of these bishops, it was, as I say, a kind of learning experience. And the great consensus that emerged on almost all of these issues was itself a reflection of the way in which this learning experience had essentially been successful. Now, it's been implied in everything that I've said all along, but should be made perhaps explicit, that technically, strictly, participation in the council was only by bishops and by heads of male religious orders. And this had been true throughout the history of the church. There had been some rather wild speculation when the council was first summoned, perhaps it would be extended to include other categories of people. There had been one reason why general councils had been held in some suspicion by modern popes was because there had been a movement in the 16th century at the time of the Protestant Reformation to resolve the difficulties of the age by calling a council. But that was an idea, for example, of Martin Luther. But Martin Luther also thought that if a council were called, the Lutherans, as they were coming to be called, would participate in the council on a basis of equality with those who were in communion with the Holy See. Clearly, to the Holy See, this was totally unacceptable. Those who would see the modern church as democratic, who would see the thrust of the Second Vatican Council as towards democracy, among the many, many obstacles they run up against is the one of the structure of the council itself that the structure of the council is inherently hierarchical. It is only the hierarchy who participate in the deliberations, who speak on the floor, who have the opportunity to vote. And beyond that, as we've noted before, the no conciliar decree has any validity unless it is approved by the pope. So there is no possibility of having what has sometimes been called a runaway council. When the council was over, Paul VI immediately and enthusiastically approved all of its decrees. So in one respect, it was one of the least troubled, least controversial councils in the history of the church. There were some fairly sharp debates, but there was not intense polarization. And on the whole, the emerging consensus, as I've said, is much more striking than whatever disagreements there may have been. There's a kind of an iron law of the history of councils which says that when a council is over, there may be a division in the church caused by those who do not accept the council. You can see this clearly in the case of Vatican I, when certain elements in the church that did not accept the doctrine of papal infallibility broke away. They came to be called the old Catholics because they claimed that the doctrine of papal infallibility was an innovation. There was no such split at the time of the Council of Trent in the 16th century, but it is also true that in some places, France most notably, 
The decrees of the Council of Trent were not officially accepted until about 50 years after the council was over. There was strong resistance. But if you go back to some of the early councils that were called notably to discuss the nature of Jesus Christ, was he fully God, was he fully man, those on the losing side of those debates sometimes went into heresy or schism, split themselves off from the main body of the church, pointed the finger and said, this council was itself heretical. So in one sense it would not be surprising if something like that happened after the Second Vatican Council, and indeed it did. It happened in the form of what is usually called in shorthand the Lefebvreist movement, which is named for a French archbishop, Marcel Lefebvre, who had spent much of his career in Africa. He had been a papal diplomat, he had been a missionary, and he had spent much of his career in Africa. He came at one point to be the head of the Holy Ghost Fathers, a religious community in the church, and he participated in the council. It is often pointed out that Archbishop Lefebvre, as one of the council fathers, signed every single one of the decrees. When the council was over, those who participated were asked to sign these decrees, presumably even if they had voted against them. And he did indeed sign them. But when the council was over, he began increasingly to state publicly his doubts and misgivings about the legitimacy of the council. Those who know anything about his movement, it is sometimes called the Catholic traditionalist movement, probably associate it with the Latin Mass and would say that Archbishop Lefebvre and his followers remained faithful to the Latin Mass, did not approve of the vernacular. A little interesting detour at this point is in order. Contrary to what many people think, as we said in an earlier lecture, the Second Vatican Council by no means outlawed the use of Latin and by no means mandated the vernacular language. Also, to make matters more confusing, there are two different Latin Masses. There is the old Latin Mass in use before the Council, and there is, if we want to call it, the new Latin Mass, the Novus Ordo, the New Order, which was the Mass mandated by, in the aftermath of Vatican II, but which can be celebrated in Latin as well as being celebrated in the vernacular. The Novus Ordo, the New Order of the Mass, does not automatically mean vernacular. Look at television on Christmas Eve, for example, and you'll see the Pope in Rome celebrating the new Mass, but celebrating it in Latin for the most part. In any case, it is thought that Archbishop Lefebvre and his followers, their sticking point was the Latin Mass. And indeed, many of his followers have said that they regard the Novus Ordo Mass, the Mass that followed the Council, as actually being invalid because it broke with the Tridentine Mass and they will make different arguments as to why they think the present Mass of the Catholic Church is not valid. Which means then that the only true Catholics are the tiny remnant which belong to their movement. But if you look a little more closely at the movement and at Archbishop Lefebvre's own concerns, you see that this is a little bit more apparent than real. The Latin Mass issue was a rallying point because it was something that a lot of people could understand readily. And I have no doubt that he was very concerned about it. But he was equally concerned about ecumenism, and he was equally concerned about religious liberty. And I think Archbishop Lefebvre believed that ecumenical activity was inherently wrong and uncatholic, 
the Protestant churches are simply in error and there should be no degree of friendliness or rapprochement with them. And on the subject of religious liberty, he believed that it was the duty of the state to enforce true religion. And that whenever Catholics were in a position where they could use the power of the government to outlaw false religion and mandate true religion, that they were in fact obligated to do so. And I believe those, as I say, were more important issues perhaps for Archbishop Lefebvre even than the liturgy. Now in a way, we've spent more time on this subject than it inherently deserves because it is a very small movement. If anyone had anticipated that there would be a major split from the church after the council on the part of those who did not accept the council, that is absolutely untrue. The followers of Archbishop Lefebvre are, I don't know what the total number is, but it would be well under, I'm sure, 100,000 in the whole world. And they are very marginal. There are other splinter groups that have likewise rejected the council but are not affiliated with Archbishop Lefebvre's movement. Negotiations between the Holy See and Archbishop Lefebvre went on for some years and finally broke down when the Archbishop announced that he was going to consecrate three bishops. Now, he was getting old, he wouldn't live forever, and if he died and there was no bishop who belonged to that movement, it would have been impossible to claim that they were carrying on the Catholic Church. They wouldn't have been able to even ordain priests. So he announced that he was going to consecrate three bishops. Now there is a fundamental rule in the modern Catholic Church and has been for several centuries. No bishop anywhere in the United States may be appointed or consecrated without the express mandate of the Holy See. And so, despite warnings, Archbishop Lefebvre went ahead and consecrated these bishops, and then he and those bishops were excommunicated. Now, we can get into sort of technical disputes. Does this constitute a schism? Does it constitute a heresy? I'm not sure if it's fruitful to go along that line. It seems clear to me it is a schism, because the schism is defined as a break with the official structure of the church. And these people do not accept the authority of the local hierarchy, they have their own bishops, and they claim in some generalized sense that they are obedient to Rome, but of course they disobey the Holy See most of the time. So in one sense one could say, well, the church escaped very well from what could have been the crisis of the Second Vatican Council because the church as a whole embraced the council enthusiastically, and those who refused to embrace it were very few in number and not important. But here is indeed where the problem lies, because I think one would also be forced to say that in a sense, people embrace the council too enthusiastically. Now in fact, you can't do such a thing. If the council teaches the truth, then one cannot embrace it too enthusiastically. But what I do mean, of course, is that they embraced it in the wrong way. And this council, the Second Vatican Council, is unique among all the councils in the history of the Church, it seems to me, in that the great crisis which followed was not due to the fact that some people refused to accept it, but the great crisis which followed was that those who claimed that they did accept it, who claimed to be its enthusiastic supporters, in effect grabbed the ball and ran out of the stadium with it so that immense numbers of things were done in the name of the Second Vatican Council, which had no warrant in the Second Vatican Council, and in fact went clean contrary to the Second Vatican Council. We can take some very simple examples. Some of these things were simply due to confusion. 
Catholics were told that the council had forbidden the use of Latin in the liturgy. Catholics were told that the council had mandated that the altars be turned around so that the priest would face the people when he celebrated mass. Untrue, said nothing about that. Catholics were told that the council had mandated the suppression of popular devotions. They were told the council had, in effect, mandated what we sometimes call the guitar mass and had, as it were, outlawed the Gregorian chant. They were told that the council had forbidden nuns to wear habits and had told them that they should dress in secular clothes. People were even told sometimes that the church, that the council had changed the moral teachings of the church. They were told that the council now allowed birth control, for example, and things of this kind. Some of these statements may have been made out of genuine ignorance and confusion because the number of people who carefully studied the documents of the council was, I'm sure, quite small. But there was also, I think, in some instances, a deliberate effort to deceive. When people measure, especially Catholics of a more orthodox persuasion, measure the gap between what the council may have actually said and expected and what actually happened, sometimes they are inclined to postulate the existence of a conspiracy. And depending on how much they know and how imaginative they are, they might make the conspiracy rather far-reaching. So, for example, in 1907, Pope Pius X condemned the heresy, which was called modernism. And some people would say, well, the modernists continued to exist as an underground for the next 50 or more years, and they kept themselves alive secretly as a sort of a fifth column within the church. And finally, they saw their opportunity at the time of the council, and they came out into the open, and they accomplished their agenda. I don't believe that happened. I don't think there's any evidence that it happened. It is true, though, that the writings of the modernists remained available for those who wanted to read them. They existed in libraries. And so the modernist influence was not dead in the sense that one could always go back and see what the modernists were talking about. During a 10-year period, and I remember this very well, a 10-year period from about 1958 to 1968, the attitude towards the modernists on the part of liberal Catholics went through three stages that changed very swiftly. The first stage was to say the modernists had indeed taught heresy. The Pope was absolutely correct to have condemned them. But we ourselves have absolutely nothing in common with the modernists. We don't share any of their errors. The second stage was to say the modernists had been misunderstood. They didn't teach anything that was heretical. The pope overreacted, and the condemnation of the modernists was really unfair. And then the third stage was to say, yes, the modernists pretty much did teach what the pope said they taught, and they were right, and he was wrong. And that in the history of the church, we often find that those in authority are wrong and the dissenters are right. And yes, we do identify with the modernists. In a certain sense, we are their new successors. They say all that happened in about a 10-year period. And I don't think this was necessarily dishonest. I think that this was the way their minds were changing very rapidly over a 10-year period. The essence of modernism, as we talked about it briefly in the first of these lectures, was, I think, 
the claim that all religious belief is simply the product of the historical age and the historical culture out of which it originates. That there really is no such thing as a transcendent eternal truth which can survive the changes of time. You cannot therefore point to any statement of doctrine, let us say the Nicene Creed, and say this is forever true and forever binding because they will say to you, oh, that reflects the outlook of the fourth century when it was written. And a meaningful creed for today's Christians would have to be very different in its character. It is a very corrosive theology. It is something that would undermine all certitude in theology and would reduce religion to largely a matter of searching for truth, but never really getting there. This false notion of what a pilgrim church is, as we were talking about it also in a previous lecture. At the beginning of the council, I don't think there were very many, if any, people of any importance, bishops or important theologians, who consciously had a radical position. That is to say, who thought of themselves as consciously wanting to undermine the official teaching of the church. I think they all regarded themselves as orthodox. They wanted to be orthodox. And they wanted to know, however, is it possible to maneuver, to adapt, to adjust, to experiment within the framework of existing orthodox teaching? Ecumenism would perhaps be the best example of that. As I said in an earlier lecture, the question of ecumenism is merely the old question of whether the glass is half empty or the glass is half full. It required no change in Catholic doctrine to acknowledge that non-Catholics possess some measure of the truth. That was not a denial of Catholic doctrine. What changed was the attitude of whether we should emphasize the positive or the negative. So there would be an example of where, if you want to call it a liberal agenda, which could legitimately be accomplished within the framework of Orthodox Catholic teaching. Now, it's always true, of course, that the most sensitive issues in religion are not going to be matters of abstract doctrine. There are times in history when people have literally fought with each other with fists and knives over the question, does the Holy Ghost proceed from both the Father and the Son, or only from the Father? And it's a little hard for us to put ourselves back into the mentality of people who would actually come to blows over this very abstract theological issue. Most of the time, when people get excited about a religious question, it's a question that has a, quote, bottom line. That is to say, it has to do with behavior. How's it going to affect me? How's it going to influence my life? Probably the chief question of that nature that was on the minds of Catholics at the time of the Council was birth control. The Catholic Church was very clear in saying Catholics were forbidden to use what was called artificial means of birth control. They could, if they had good reason, employ what was then called the rhythm method, later came to be called natural family planning which did not involve any direct effort to thwart the conception of a child but it was based instead on abstaining from sexual relations at certain periods. In 1960, almost nobody in the church was publicly, at least, calling the issue of birth control into question. 
Some years ago, I was very struck when I went back and looked at what was the most liberal Catholic publication in the United States at that time, maybe still is, Commonweal magazine. And they had a symposium in 1961-62. What do you expect from the council? And they asked a number of people. Well, one single person mentioned birth control. And he didn't say we ought to change the teaching. He just said, I don't think we've done a good enough job in explaining to people the practice of rhythm. But the most liberal people in the church on the eve of the council were not expecting nor advocating that the church would change its teaching on birth control. They accepted the idea that it couldn't, that this was a irreformable teaching. Let me say here also as a parenthesis, because I think it's a very interesting one. At that time in the United States, and I suppose elsewhere, one of the ways in which Catholics were distinguished from other kinds of people was precisely the fact that Catholics did not believe in birth control. And along with not eating meat on Friday and a few other things, this was a distinguishing mark of a Catholic. And some Catholics experienced a certain amount of harassment over this, bringing too many kids into the world and so forth. What was not recognized at that time was how recently the Protestant churches themselves had quietly come to accept birth control. There's been some research done on this subject and any number of leading Protestant figures all the way up in some cases into the 1950s can be found declaring that the practice of birth control was immoral. And that was certainly the view of people like Martin Luther and John Calvin. And there had been a quiet revolution that was not even for the most part publicly discussed. And so the Catholic Church was not as far out of step with historic Christianity on this point as Catholics at the time sometimes thought. In any case, that's a bit of a detour, but as I say, I think an interesting one. The subject of birth control did come up on the floor of the council. Not in the sense of let's now allow birth control, but in the sense of what were called the ends or purposes of marriage. Classical Catholic teaching, and indeed you could say classical Protestant teaching as well, had held that the purpose of marriage was the procreation of children. The purpose of marriage was the propagation of the human race. And the pleasure of the sexual act was considered to be a byproduct of this. But there had been a developing theology of marriage in the decades before the Council, an outgrowth of a philosophical trend which was called personalism. You can see personalism reflected in the decree on religious liberty. It is the idea that the human person is the highest, most valuable, most dignified being in the universe. The human person is like God in certain important respects. We are made in the image and likeness of God. We have an inherent dignity. And out of this personalism, there had been theologians, quite orthodox, who had been saying that to view the Marriage Act as solely for the purpose of procreation is to miss a great deal. People don't get married simply in order to have children. When people get married, ideally, it should be out of love. It should be out of a desire to give themselves to one another. 
The birth of a child is the fulfillment of that love, the extension of that love, but one cannot separate love from procreation. We somewhat euphemistically call the sex act making love, even when the people involved aren't necessarily in love. And that, I think, reflects the fact that we understand that, properly speaking, the sex act is supposed to be an act of love between two people, an act of unity between two people, which then produces offspring. So the discussion on the floor of the council had to do with whether the church should reaffirm that procreation is the sole purpose of marriage or whether it should also recognize that a loving unity between the spouses is also one of the purposes. Not a contradiction of earlier teaching, but a development of it to say, now we see it more broadly. We see a wider dimension of it. We situate the act of procreation within the wider context of marital love. In the end, the council stated both as being the purposes of marriage. But John XXIII, in one of his very rare interventions in the council, had announced at some point that the question of contraception should not be primarily a matter for the council itself, although the council obviously was going to say something, but he would appoint a commission to study the whole issue. And so in the council's supposedly most liberal decree, Gaudium et Spes, the decree on the church in the modern world, we do find reference to the purposes of marriage in which love is mentioned or unity is mentioned, but so is the birth of children, and it would be impossible to say that somehow the council was telling us that a childless marriage, a deliberately childless marriage, or a deliberately sterile act of love would now be permissible. The great crisis of the post-conciliar church erupted, therefore, around the issue of birth control. And this was quite ironic, given the fact that the council had spent very little time on the subject, and that what it had to say on the subject was not earth-shaking. Parenthetically, we might say that also in Gaudium et Spes, there's reference to what they call the plague of divorce, even though the divorce rate then was a lot lower than it is now and there's a reference to what they call the unspeakable crime of abortion. So anyone who again wants to say, well, the Second Vatican Council modified Catholic on some of these crucial issues is completely in error. The way in which the Council was widely perceived, and I'll come back to this a bit later, was that the essence of it was liberating Catholics, freeing Catholics, from previous obligations and responsibilities, that the purpose of the council was to give us greater freedom. Now, that was a radical misreading of the council, but it was a common misreading. And if we simply take a simple example, the reasoning that some people went through was, well, they used to tell us that we could not eat meat on Friday. Now they tell us we can. They obviously realized they made a mistake. They imposed some burdensome rule on us which is not compatible with the loving gospel and so now they've admitted their mistake. And every other change that was made was sort of interpreted in the same way. This then gave rise to the expectation that other things would change as well. Now a relatively bright 14-year-old Catholic child at that time who had gone to a parochial school and who had paid attention could easily explain the differences between things which were a matter of God's law 
and things which were a matter of the church's law. So they would have said, yes, the reason why priests can't get married is because the church has made a law to that effect. We do know that there have been sometimes married priests in the history of the church. And the same would be true of abstaining from meat on Friday. This is the law of the church. We could be dispensed with it, as we sometimes are, and it could be done away with. On the other hand, divorce is the law of God, birth control is the law of God, and so forth. But that kind of distinction became blurred in people's minds as the movement of the council went on. And it led to a kind of, in a strange sense, people becoming less knowledgeable and less sophisticated about their faith than they had been before by, for example, blurring this crucial distinction between what is the law of the church and what is the law of God. The popes were saying from the very beginning, and the orthodox theologians were saying in the very beginning, we don't have any authority to tell people that they can practice birth control. We don't have any authority to tell people they can get divorced, because those are God's laws, and we're just the stewards of the church. We can't take over God's own role. But a lot of people sort of thought, well, they could do it if they wanted to. Ironically, again, some of the people who were criticizing the hierarchy and saying that the church is too hierarchical, the pope claims too much authority for himself and so on, were also saying to the pope, come on, use your authority. Tell us it's okay to practice birth control. And the pope was saying, I don't have any authority to do that. I have to submit myself to the will of God. The very existence, however, of a papal birth control commission, which carried over now into the pontificate of Paul VI, continued to raise in people's minds the expectation that maybe indeed the teaching would change. The period from 1963, when the appointment of the commission was announced, until 1968, when Paul VI issued a definitive statement on the subject, which was a period of about five years, was a very crucial one, and it seems to me had a very bad effect upon the morale of the church, had very devastating long-range consequences. There were always people during that period who kept saying the church's teaching will not change, the church's teaching cannot change, don't expect it to. But on the other hand, there were other people, and this included priests and theologians, who were saying the opposite. I think there will be a change. That's why there's a study group in Rome. There were leaks coming forth from the papal commission to the effect that people on the papal commission were pushing for change. During that period, as I've said, people kind of lost the sense of the distinction between the laws of God and the laws of men. Now, we know now from having studied this whole process, the Papal Birth Control Commission and all the rest, that there was never any realistic possibility that the church would have said that, okay, we were wrong about things like condoms or diaphragms, and now we're admitting that fact, so go ahead. The only possible question had to do with the new invention that was called the pill. And there was a certain amount of uncertainty in the beginning about what exactly the pill did, what it was, and so there were people who said, well, maybe the church will say, yes, condoms and diaphragms are wrong, but the pill is okay. As it turned out, that would have been a quite illogical argument, but there were those who did advance that argument. And then after a time, things were moving with such speed in those years that some of these same people said, well, 
These distinctions are meaningless. Of course there's no logical difference between the pill and a condom. Why don't we just admit that the church is flat out wrong on this subject and go ahead and say that birth control is okay. When the Papal Commission finished its work in 1966, the majority of the commission voted that there should be a change in church teaching and the church should now announce the approval of birth control. A large minority took the opposite position. The commission was purely advisory. It was merely supposed to submit its findings to the Pope. The majority leaked their report to the press. It got published and it created a sensation because, among other things, it reinforced the idea the church is about to change. There is an official commission appointed by the Pope to study the question. The church is about to change. Then, in July of 1968, Pope Paul VI issues the encyclical letter Humane Vitae, Human Life, which reaffirms the church's classic teaching on birth control and says that Catholics may not use any artificial means to thwart the conception of a child. There is a furor that ensues. Paul VI had been very open to new ideas in the sense of being willing to listen to them. It was a puzzlement to many people and still is to some extent that he actually put on the birth control commission persons known to be of opposite view. He did not appoint what we might call a tame commission that was made up of people who would be known likely to come up with the expected conclusion. It was also not a rigged commission in the other direction. It wasn't one of those commissions where everybody's going to come out in favor of change because that's what the man in charge wants. It was a very much split and divided commission. And the best explanation, I think, as for why that happened was that Paul VI genuinely wanted to hear a spectrum of opinions. Before he made a decision, he wanted to make sure that he had heard every viewpoint. He wanted to hear the best arguments that he could on all sides of the question. And then, in the end, he concluded that the church's teaching was a true one. It's hard to understand in retrospect how he could have ever arrived at a different conclusion and still claim to have been operating within the authentic tradition of the church. Well, as I said, the issuance of Humanae Vitae in 1968 causes a furor. And much of that furor is due to bitter disappointment on the part of people who had been told often, sometimes by their own priests, it's going to change, don't worry. Statistics show that in that five-year period between 1963 and 1968, substantially greater numbers of Catholics began to practice birth control. A survey that had been taken in 63 by the priest sociologist Father Andrew Greeley had found that the majority of American Catholics followed the church's teaching on this subject, a fact that was borne out if you simply looked at the number of children that they had. But by 1968, the Catholic birth rate was beginning to be about the same as that of the non-Catholic birth rate. And so lots of Catholics had started to practice birth control during that period. Sometimes they did it on the grounds that this is a doubtful teaching. 
if it weren't doubtful, there wouldn't be a study commission. And they had priests who told them that a doubtful moral teaching is not binding. But when the Pope finally rendered his decision in 1968, the toothpaste was out of the tube, as the image is frequently given us. Instead of large numbers of Catholics saying, oh dear, I guess I've been doing something wrong. I had been erroneously told that the church was going to change its teaching, and now I see that it hasn't changed its teaching. So we had better stop practicing birth control right away. The majority of Catholics instead reacted by saying, well, in effect, the Pope is wrong. Some of them said this quite openly, quite angrily, quite defiantly. The Pope is wrong. Others may not have said it, but they acted as though he were. They went on doing what they were doing and felt no compunction to follow the papal teaching. Those who angrily dissented from the encyclical and did so publicly tended to be priests and theologians. There was a major crisis at the Catholic University of America in Washington with a significant number of the faculty, almost all priests, publicly dissented from the encyclical. And the bishops who were ultimately in charge of the university determined that they were going to dismiss these faculty members as no longer fulfilling their mandate as teachers of theology at a Catholic institution. But this was the great age of campus uprisings everywhere. Masses of students, demonstrations, riots, etc. And Catholic U had its version of it. And in the end, the bishops backed down and the dissenting theologians stayed on the faculty. And in essence then, public dissent from an official church teaching had successfully established itself. There is no point in raking over these old wounds, but I will simply say one thing in this regard, and that is that I believe it was a serious tactical mistake on the part of church leadership to have essentially maintained a kind of silence on the subject of birth control between 63 and 68, which was the crucial period when, if any, if ever, they should have been speaking out authoritatively. And that it was a very natural reaction on the part of a lot of people to say, well, we don't hear anything about this. The Pope himself is not saying anything about it. He's given it to a committee to study. And therefore, it cannot be binding teaching, as we were told. And this, it seems to me, was an enormous opportunity missed. And by the time the Pope came to try to shut the door, as it were, in 1968, it was too late. And much of what he was trying to accomplish had already been lost. As I say, I think it was a very serious tactical mistake. Again, this is ironic in view of the fact that birth control was not one of the major questions that was on the mind of the fathers of the Second Vatican Council, and that when the council met in 1962, almost nobody had been thinking about that subject. Now, coming back to the question again of whether there was in fact some sort of a conspiracy, whether there was an underground movement of modernist theologians that had survived from the early 20th century, and as I said, I don't think there were. There were, however, as I said in my first lecture, various kinds of agendas that people had when they went into the council. And these agendas might or might not overlap with one another, might or might not relate to one another. Some people thought that the church had an urgent need to address the question of international peace, nuclear weaponry. Some people thought an urgent need to address economic injustice, third world. 
Some people thought communism was the great problem and the church needed to confront communism even more strongly than in the past. Some people thought that the emerging third world church was what was important. Too much attention being placed on Europe and America. Let's put more attention on Asia and Africa. The list went on and on and on. Disproportionately, the intellectual influence at the council, however, came from five countries. And those five countries were Belgium, the Netherlands, France, Germany, and Austria. So entirely Western Europe. Places where the heritage of the church was quite ancient, went back many, many, many centuries. France called the eldest daughter of the church, which had a rich Catholic history rich in theology, rich in saints, rich in religious art, rich in spiritual movements, rich in anything that you can think of, but which had begun to fall on hard times. And as I said in the first lecture, the American bishops came to Rome thinking everything's fine, but the Western European bishops had reasons for thinking that maybe not everything is fine. In those countries, to take simply one example, with the exception of the Netherlands, there was a significant falling off of church attendance and a significant falling off in the number of religious vocations since World War II. So the leaders of the churches there had reason to think, well, we've got to try something new. The old formulas are not really working. Now these are also the five countries where you might, in a sense, say the brain of the church is located. These are the countries with, again, the richest Catholic intellectual tradition, the leading theologians, the outstanding Catholic institutions of learning. Any educated intellectual Catholic of that period in America, for example, would be constantly looking to Europe and could name the important thinkers in France, in Belgium, in Germany, etc. Now, there was an institution at the council which was called the Peritus. And the Peritus is simply an expert. And officially, every bishop was allowed to bring with him two Periti, which is the plural. One was supposed to be an expert in theology, the other was supposed to be an expert in canon law. Some of the leading theologians of the day came to the council as Periti to bishops. They had no vote, they had no right to speak on the floor of the council, but they had tremendous input. They wrote position papers, they wrote memos, they ran discussion groups where bishops would get together and try to decide what they wanted to do on this or that question. The Periti had a major role to play in shaping the thinking of the bishops. Bishops in Europe tended to be more intellectual and scholarly than they did in the United States, but even they, although they may have been scholars at one time, had been administrators for a long time and probably didn't read as much as they should. And American bishops were quite frank in admitting that they were not intellectuals and scholars and that they needed expert advice. So the role of the periti becomes very important. And the periti have varying kinds of theological agendas some of which was very subtle, would seem very arcane, perhaps, and abstract to the average Catholic, but which could be seen as having much deeper practical implications as time went on. 
And we could put these pariti into two categories, broadly speaking, which I have alluded to again in my first lecture. One was the movement of what was called ressourcement, French word, going back to the sources. And that said that the church will renew itself by getting in touch with its roots. Or if you use the image of a spring, let us search down the point at which the spring comes up out of the ground, where the water is purest, and let us refresh ourselves from there. If you go back again to the image of a tree or a plant, let us prune the growth in such a way as to make it healthier and to encourage future growth. Let's get rid of dead branches and so forth. In some cases, you prune a plant all the way down to the ground in order to make it healthy. This is resourcement, but the authority to which you appeal is the authority of pure early Christianity. The other approach is the modernist one not necessarily in a technical sense of the modernists who were condemned in 1907, but in the general sense of saying, no, let's not look to the church of 2,000 years ago, let's look to the world of today. The authority to which the church ought to appeal is present day culture. We will renew the church by bringing it more into line with present day culture. Sometimes these two, ressourcement and modernism, overlapped with one another, but often enough they were in conflict with one another. And it was not clear enough often in the minds of ordinary Catholics and their bishops even, the distinction between the two. But that distinction was absolutely crucial, and the failure to make it led again to a lot of unnecessary confusion. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.